Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, look, welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. Thanks for coming. Now, our guests tonight uh, run the magnificent Backlisted <laughs> podcast, which, as I'm sure you know, gives new life to old books. And in pursuit of this, they are staggering consumers. One of them uh, read 262 books last year alone, which is guaranteed to make anybody feel like a pathetic underachiever. Good. And, uh, yeah, good. <laughs> good. And as they have a powerful Very much thirst... Very the reason he did it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they have a powerful thirst for music books, so we thought we'd, they'd be the perfect people to get in and help us recommend the greatest rock memoirs ever written. And between us, we've noticed a certain pattern emerging here, that the makers of some of the most sublime music can simultaneously be the most insufferable creatures on God's earth and capable of grotesque levels of appalling misbehaviour. <laughs> some examples will follow. Please Indeed. welcome the great John Mitchinson and Andy Miller. Yay! Excellent. And we should just say, John, to, by way of explanation, you are um, you're, a, you're a, a vice president of Hay Festival. You're one of the you're in charge of the research team for the QI television program. Not really anymore, but well, yeah, you I, were. I was for a long time. You were, yeah. and also the, the the co-founder of Unbound Publishing. So, what's the philosophy behind uh, Unbound? Um, bringing authors and readers closer together, Mark. <laughs> oh, what a very yeah, beautiful it was, thing! It was the first. It's the first seriously targeted crowdfunding site that just did books. Um, which we started, God knows, nearly ten, nine and a half years ago. So, and still going, still going strong, as we we say. Yeah, yeah. And so I, that's what I do mostly. I still do a bit. I dabble with QI now, but not not as much. I mean, it, for me, it's perhaps you know Stephen leaving was it, it was a kind of a, a moment. And so I haven't written for the show for about four years. But at one stage, you were writing questions. For oh yeah, I was, yeah. Well, John and I in charge John, of, John, of the John QI L. John Lloyd and I developed it together, and we wrote. A, a lot of the first two series, all the scripts, and we did all the books together, which have, yeah, um, which it was all it's great fun, and I still love it. I still do the Twitter feed on a Friday, oh, brilliant, which I always, in a competitive way, like to feel gets more hits yeah, than yeah. the other days of the week, but yeah. yeah. And Andy, you've written a series of very, very original, very funny books, and uh, <laughs> the year of reading dangerously being the one that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm particularly excited about. So explain the, the, the theory behind that one. Okay, so uh, yes, I've written th- th- uh, three books. I'm in the middle of writing my fourth book. My first book was about how much I hate sport. My second book was about how much I love the kinks. And my third book was about what an egregious liar I am. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so the, and the third book was The Year of Reading Dangerously. And that is a book about how I read uh, in a year 50 books that I had at one point or another in my life lied about having read. <laughs> uh, in a bid to... Uh, uh, I, I didn't lie in a bid to deceive anyone that, except myself. Uh, it was a sort of project to sort of... Um, 
set right the cosmic imbalance that I had caused by being such a bullshitter. So when you said, <laughs> so when you said earlier that I read 262 books last year, I did read 262 well, you, books. You tweeted about it very, well, very well, proudly. I do. I have to put up with abuse for reading so much um, <laughs> because people don't like it up. And people really hate it. No, they don't. They really, I really hate it. The reaction was yeah, that yeah, people yeah. were appalled. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's that guy from Sky News called? Adam Bolton. Yeah, Adam Bolton. Yeah. Uh, to every month I post a photograph of the books that I've read and, um, and Adam, pile. Ad, Adam Bolton from Sky News, who doesn't follow me, quote tweeted it and said, well done, have you got a family or a job? <laughs> it was just online abuse. And then he got massively abused by all my followers, <laughs> uh, which I was supposed to well disapprove of. Well, that's the yeah. glory of social media yeah, summed yeah. up yeah. there, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, um, but actually, reading all, all that all that reading is because I really, really like reading. But, I mean, you all know what it's and like. And I'm good at it, it let's it, be honest. It's then. happened. Yeah. I'm shit hot at it. Um, <laughs> well, I'm shit hot at reading. Um, but, you know, I've seen this in, in with comedians I know, musicians I know. I see it, for instance, in music magazines when they say, what do you, what, then they ask musicians, what music do you listen to in the shower? And musicians, if they're being honest, go, well... I don't listen to any music in the shower. Because you can't I, hear it for I the don't, shower. Yeah. I don't sing anything in the shower because singing is my day job, yeah. my evening job, but I, I try and remain silent the rest of the time. So I sort of think if you're... I, I had been a publisher and a writer and a bookseller, all those things, but I'd sort of fallen out of the habit of actually reading, so it was a process of constructive re-education. It's odd, that, though, about reading, isn't it? It winds people up so much. I mean, I... Had a, one of the former. It's bosses, precocious, isn't it? One of the former yeah. bosses of Waterstones used to be, boast uh, about how little he'd read. I mean, you you wouldn't do that if you were running a music company, but or what, you're running, you know, it's like no. some sort of. Let me ask you this, though. Inverted. I mean, you, you do. I mean, I read a fair bit, but compared to you guys, nothing like you guys. And loads of people I met in book publishing, they read way more than I do. What tip <laughs> would you give people? No, because people always say, "I'd like to read more, but I can only." wait until I get on a sun lounger once a year or something like that. <laughs> is there any tip that you would give anybody as to how they could increase their reading? Uh, well, I would say um, when you wake up feeling those dark, the screaming terror of the meaninglessness of, of your life at four in the morning, <laughs> and you, you, just instead of uh, lying there getting sweating and, and feeling terrible, just... just pick read. up a novel and yeah, read. Yeah. And then you kind of read, you probably get in an hour, maybe two hours at the most, and then you fall into the most delicious slumber. Uh, and then yeah, by the yeah. end of the week, you find actually yeah, yeah. You've, re you've, you've, yeah. read you've read two books I, yeah. without I, even trying. I always say to people um, that, uh, I mean, this seems such a basic thing, but it really works. Just read 50, 50 pages, pages a day. Yeah, Just great. read whatever you're reading. Make sure that you read 50 pages. That'll take you an hour to an hour and a half. Do it on your commute, do it on the way home. Do it in your lunch hour, but make sure you hit that, those rhythm, pages, yeah. right? And and like they say, like all sorts of things, if you practice every day, you get better at it. You're not going to read more every day, but it just becomes the texture of of your daily life, right? right? So you make the answer is, and this is the thing people don't like when you say it. <laughs> what, how do you find the time? Well, I make you make the time. Yeah. And, and you'd have to make loads of time. Hey, we've all got the same amount of time, Andy. It's just well, what we do with it. You know. <laughs> cut, back right on, cut, cut back on your yeah. equestrian activities and <laughs> Let's uh, yeah, yeah. read a book. Yeah. It's a bit late now to ask the, the, the question that we normally ask people at the beginning, which is, what music-playing machinery was in your house when you were a child, and what did you play on it? Do you want to go first, or? Go on, John. Uh, yeah, we, we just had... We lit, uh, the one I really remember was... It was like a a vinyl sort of covered box thing that you open. I think it was pie, and it was just a... It was literally just a, a turntable with built-in speakers. It was the, the most gutless thing ever. But, of course, it was, you know, objective. Of, I mean, my parents used to... Had a sort of classical collection. My dad had one pop record, which was Buddy Holly's Greatest Hits, which was great. It was actually that's a really good. good one to have. If you you're going to have one, that's the yeah. one to and, have. And that sustained me... Uh, that and the transistor radio, of course, with the little tiny earpiece, that sustained me through the the the, the, the yeah the kind of the difficult periods of, of, right. of gr growing what up. What about you, Andy? Uh, we had something similar. We had, uh, from the sound of it, anyway, we had a bush dance set. 
uh, with which I, I mean, I was really, you know, pop obsessed in, from the age of about four or five. Oh, they're a little selector. You could stack yeah, up a load yeah, of yeah. singles. Yeah, and yeah. I yeah. play them as well. There's a brilliant um, auteur song by Luke Haynes called um, 1967, the chorus of which goes, it's, it's a song that imagines his parents deciding to have him. <laughs> And he was born in 1967. And the chorus goes, no pop in our record collection. <laughs> That's his verdict on his parents. And my parents were the same. They had no... My dad kind of hated music, really. He liked Scottish uh, marching bands. That was the only music that he liked. <laughs> oh, no. So that was the only kind of music that we really had in the house, apart from they liked Vince Hill and they liked uh, Herp Albert and they liked The Seekers. And they had bought God, in a moment of the madness. Carnival is over. Sorry, nothing wrong with the Seekers. Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. They had bought in a moment of madness the Seekers' last uh, studio LP, Seekers Seen in Green, which has got this brilliant psychedelic cover and has got um, um, a song called Angeline is Always Friday on it, which was the first, uh, I mean, not <laughs> clearly not truly psychedelic, but the first psychedelic record uh, that I ever heard. And that was sort of that was the starting pistol, really. So my parents only had one pop record, but I really made the most of it. Right. I just used to listen to it over and over again. I used to stack up the Vince Hill records, looking, that's <laughs> looking, brilliant. That's brilliant. looking for something yeah, to, yeah, yeah. You know, to yeah. come on to. Well, look to to the business of the evening. <clears throat> we asked you to do a bit of preparation uh, because among the many books that you've read are a fair number of. Uh, of uh, music biographies, which is, you know, a, a field that we regularly deal with in these Word in Your Ear evenings and, you know, we've had a certain amount of experience with. And so you've, you've both picked three, yes? We have. Yeah, we have. And I think John's going to go first. Oh, God. And we've got a little bit of visual here that we're looking at the, with the three covers so that, that John so chose. It's, it's so mad. My wife refers to my brain as a skip, and I, I do look at this and think, why? Why did I choose these three of all of them? Well, I do have good reasons for why I chose each of them. For each for Three very different books, I think. Um, so the first one? The first one is Dino by Nick Toshes with the great subtitle, Living High in the Dirty Business of Dreams. That's fantastic. And it's, I chose this because Nick Toshes didn't really want to write a biography of Dean Martin, I don't think. He wanted to buy, write a great book about America. He was fascinated by American history. He researched, uh, he researched his subjects. He had a most peculiar su succession of books. He started in the early 80s with Hellfire, which was a kind of... Uh, legendary kind of uh, stick in the ground for, for, for music biography, his life of Jerry um, uh, Lee Lewis. And it was... Uh, he did a thing in that which he does in this book as well. He then wrote uh, on Dino... He wrote a <laughs> the authorised biography of Horn Notes, <laughs> which I've, I've read, and is... Um, yeah, it's good. I mean, it's not as good as Dino or, or Hellfire, but it's... Yeah, he, I mean, he, if he needed to do the middle-of-the-road thing, he could do it. But what he, what he is... He basically was a... He was a frustrated novelist. He is actually a novelist. I, didn't, I don't think his novels are great, but he is a novelist. But what he is also is a kind of a historian, and he's a historian of the American dream. And what he really, I think... The, the book after Dino he wrote was a biography of Sonny Liston, and then he wrote a, a, a biography of a, of a, of a, a, a gangland uh, boss. I mean, so the histories... It's, it's, he's a historian more than I think he's a music writer. But he was famous as a music writer. Um, he and Lester Bangs, the Noise Boys, they, they hated prog rock. They hated Californian kind of Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. They loved kind of country... Uh, they loved R&B, and they wrote... In, he was self-consciously writing a kind of Faulknerian, William, William Faulkner kind of stream of consciousness prose. So what he does, that he, I think a lot of biographers don't ever have the courage to do. You don't get this in Kitty Kelly. He becomes Dean Martin, sitting you know, by mm. the pool, yeah. out of his head on Perkadan, sipping his whiskey, and he's thinking about the pointlessness of his life. This book is kind of... I, I'm just going to read you one really, really short bit um, because that gives you... It gives you the kind of the, both the joy and the slight nightmare of, of, um, of, uh, of 
being Nick Tosh's or being Nick Tosh's pretending to be. So this book is, it's a history of immigration to America. It's a history of the, of the mob. It's a history of the rise of, 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 of Vegas as a, as a gambling town. It's the history of television. Dean Martin becomes the most... He, he did something that not even Sinatra he'd done. Not only was he a great film star, Oscar-winning film star, he was also had the top-rating TV show of all time with Jerry Lewis. He was a comedian, so he, 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 he was also, you know, top of the charts. The, the song Volare, um, he picked up. It was originally called Nel, Pinto di, Nel Blu di Pinto di Blu. He picked Volare as the title. It became a, a massive hit. So... We all think of him as the kind of genial, half-drunk, half-sloshed. But this is, this, is, this is Tosh's explaining the inner heart of... Dean was an effulgence of the warp, you see, effulgence, we're already... <laughs> between the square and the fashionably cool, and as such, somehow, always would elude the fate of the cool, which invariably was to become the square. His was a cool that was rarely au courant. It was a preternatural cool, as divorced from the passing modes of the day as he himself was from the world that in turn embraced and discarded them. In Columbus, where he'd been at school, he had made the sweetheart of Sigma Chi sound cool. Those college kids had been singing that Cornborn song since 1912, but Dean sang it as he would sing about any broad, as if she were real, as if she had a scent to luxuriate in, silk panties to be whispered out of. And he made Guess Who and Sammy Watkins' other creaking foxtrot sound cool too. He did not do what those jazzbos did. He did not take old songs and modernise them with improvisation or contrived invention. Instead, he sang them as if they belonged to no time at all, as if, and was it not true, regardless of any jazzbos' pretensions or any talk of art, there were nothing more and nothing less than the colours of those seductions of the heart that wove through the breezes of the old ways, obdurate woods. They were there. They lighted upon him. He could feel them. But the colours he sang rarely left the shadows of those woods. Underneath the feeling in his voice, underneath the weaving of those colours, there was always lontananza, loneliness. He was the voice of a man who would bring the boys of Sigma Chi to sentimental tears, then go off to sneak fuck their sweetheart before vanishing into the night. As Tony Torcasio said, he pissed ice water. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... That's great. That's Tosh at his, at, his, at his best. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing, I think, uh, vision of, 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 a, of a performer who might look like a lightweight to us now, might look like a kind of a, 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 a sort of a side note. But in his day, Dean Martin was the greatest. But it, it is also one of the interesting things about music, isn't it, that, uh, that people tend... To, you, you tend to take musicians as seriously as they appear to take themselves. <laughs> uh, whereas very often the great musicians don't take themselves... don't appear to be taking themselves seriously at all. Yeah. You know, their art is just completely and he was inside kind of, them. Absolutely, and he was kind of unreachable like that. He, was, he had sort of Teflon. He, he, was, he would do, he would act. He would, people loved acting with him. Um, when it was the time to, to break, you know, the, 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 the double act he had with uh, Jerry Lewis, he kind of did it. He left three or four wives. You know, he was, he was kind of untouchable in some strange way. And I think that's what Toshes is interested in in the book. He kind of, he wants to render that consciousness, not just tell the story of the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also buoyed up by the incredible success. I mean, in 1967, he's making $15 million just from his TV programme. $300,000. And Sinatra never broke broke television. Yeah, so it was kind of... He was, was, yeah, he was, at a certain point, the biggest star in the world. And Incredible. yet, not really somebody who reflected much on that. Yeah. It's amazing. I was, I was reading something recently about Bob Hope, that Bob Hope was the largest house owner in the United States, private house owner, <laughs> because he, owned, you know, he just made fortunes out of TV and radio, which he just invested in property. Yeah. Well, Dino had 19 properties, yeah. most of them ranches. It was yeah, absolutely incredible. But you know how the, the, there's this idea that people are driven, you know, yeah. kind of a crazy, driven way. didn't feel like that with Dino at all. He was, he was kind of... Nobody ever felt they were close yeah. to him. Never very, the, 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 even you know the people who worked with him never felt they were close to him. It's really, I, ne- I nearly chose um, Sammy Davis Jr.'s memoir 
Yes, I Can, which was published in 1965, which, uh, I mean, you know, is a long time ago, but if you read it now, it, it's, it really crackles, and it really uh, gives you an insight into the uh, racism that Sammy Davis Jr. and his brothers had to deal with every single day. And, and, and in fact, you know, Sinatra and Dino, who have been criticised a lot, one of the things that, that, that comes over in that book, and from everything else I've read suggests is the case, that they, they were colour blind. You know, they may have yeah. had other blind spots, but <laughs> when it came to, to backing artists of colour, mm. um, the Rat Pack were pretty good most of the time, provided you knew your place, right? <laughs> I'm sure. And so yeah. that's the tension that's going on in Sammy's life and career, and in that book, that book is such a good read. Yeah, it is really a great, great read. Book. So, moving on. Okay. Your, um, so, so t- something now for something now completely, something different. Now completely different. Completely different. Um, so, we've, we've had it as a guest uh, word in your well, ear. Very funny. So, though. you know that he is, this is like, I mean, a kind of command performance. It's a great prologue to the book where he says, Oh, I thought I'd divide the history of the music industry. I wanted to write the history of British pop into five sections. And I wrote a chapter and I sent it into my publisher and they said, Just do this, just do the whole of this. It was basically on, on, on a, I think it was drugs. And this is. Essentially, there are, this is a, the story of, what, of what 50 is, years what, of British pop. What is the, book, bu- what is the yeah, book, book called? It's called Black Vinyl and White Powder by Simon Napier Bell. So, the, the two things that really. <laughs> what a pro. Good thinking. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm reading the time. Yeah. Of course, people on the radio, as they say, will yeah. be able to see yeah. these marvellous slides. So, Black Vinyl, White Powder, it's, it's a story really of British pop and rock through from the late 50s to, to the end of the 90s, using drugs, really, as the theme. Um, you know, records, he, he, he reminds you at the beginning of the book that nobody in the late 50s, still it was music publishing, sheet music was still the big thing, nobody thought that records, these physical things, were going to become what they became, which was by the mid-70s. You know, the most, this massive multi million pound global industry making people richer. And nobody thought it would go away again. Nobody thought it would go away again. Um, And indeed, in 2001, Simon's not sure what's going to happen at the end of the book, but he was the manager of a succession of acts um, through the late 50s into the 60s. He'd started as a kind of a, a, a jazz trumpeter and then was seduced really he was he was gay and living in late 50s london uh, there was an incredibly active and interesting uh, gay scene with a, a lot of a lot of the gay uh, uh, men went into music management um, and a lot of them managed uh, often acts from from up north i mean brian epstein and the beatles being just the most famous example so he gives you an insider's guide of his tour through becoming a music manager. He managed the Yardbirds. He managed John's, John's children very Japan, briefly. Japan, wasn't it? Went, went into yeah. the, he went into uh, Japan. <laughs> yeah. Um, he also, I mean, he did things like he, he co-produced Peter Sarstedt's, um, uh, uh, co-managed the, 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 you know, Where Do You Go To My Lovely. He wrote uh, Dusty Springfield's uh, classic song, You Don't, song, have, to you don't have To Say You Love yeah. Me. Um, he did all kinds of things. He took... That, that there's an, another whole book about him called I'm, gonna, I'm Coming to Take You to Lunch about how he managed to get Wham! to become the first Western pop act to play in China. So he's a wheeler dealer, um, but he's most of all, he's just a wonderful storyteller. And the book is a bit like kind of crack, to be honest. Once you start reading it, you'll start... It's so breezy. It's, the stories are so well told. And, he, you know, there's some of them are, you know, the... the, the, the Altamont or the, the Stones, um, uh, the Stones, the famous arrest and Marianne Faithful and the Mars Bar are kind of old hat. But a lot of the detail in the book is, is for the first time. I mean, stories that I don't think anybody else could have told because he was the only one who was there. So it's, it's anecdote as, art, as kind of as, as art, really. You can't, once you start this book, you can't put it down and you breeze through um, the 60s into the 70s. But the key is. I mean, it kind of is quite a persuasive thing. If you don't know what acid does to people, it's hard to explain what happened to pop music in the late 60s. If you don't know the difference between cocaine and, um, uh, uh, and 
uh, what was that terror speed that terrible stuff we used to take when we were, when we were punks, then you can't, can't really see the difference between rumours and never mind the bollocks. So, <laughs> um, so he kind of... And then if you, don't know what, you know, if you don't know what ecstasy does, you can't really explain what happens in that post. So it's, it's actually... He's very, very good on the fact that, that, that drugs... I mean, well before, obviously, you know, that heroin was being used by jazz artists as well, but it's, it's, a, brilliantly, uh, it's a brilliantly kind of light... Uh, uh, and quite productive way of stringing a lot of uh, very different multicoloured beads yeah, on, this, on yeah. this string. In your, in your experience of reading these kind of books, are, uh, are rock anecdotes disappointing? <laughs> <laughs> I, I always feel people want them to be true. You know, yeah. Keith, uh, Keith Moon and the Rolls Royce in the swimming pool, people just desperately want that to be true. Yeah, yeah they, they do. There's a really interesting... You raise an interesting point, David, because... There's a really fascinating phenomenon that I've noticed happening in the last 10 to 15 years where rock autobiographies often ghosted that should be, by rights, be absolutely jaw-dropping are quite dull. And that is what I refer to as male-on-Sunday syndrome. <laughs> that when you have a subject like Eric Clapton or Keith Richards... You employ a ghost who gets them to tell the stories in their own words that everybody already knows so that you can then sell out to the rock dad who reads the mail on Sunday. Not, you know, there's a brilliant example of, a, I, I'm not going to name him, but let's say the guitarist in a um, Shepherd's <laughs> Bush band with its roots in the mod movement. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whoever that might be. Yes. 100. Let's see right. if we could, yeah, yeah. Who was, who was paid a handsome advance for his autobiography and delivered a book. Brick like tone. With a million yeah. words in length. Yeah. <laughs> and the publisher reacted in horror because they said correctly, we're not going to sell many ice creams going at that speed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very so, they had, so they had to edit a million-word book down to a 250,000-word book. So they threw away three-quarters of the book with all the stuff in it about the recording of certain records you're yeah. going to be familiar with, <laughs> yeah. but keeping all the stuff about yachts and girlfriends. Yeah. So you've managed to, to create a boring book out of something that could have been fantastic. And a lot of the time, I think the problem with rock anecdotes, Dave, to go back to your question is, the people telling the anecdote have told the, the anecdote so many times that they can't remember the event on which the anecdote is based. No, that's true. I, I think that's where Napier Bell has the edge, because he is, he is kind of this sort of... Oscar Wildean kind of raconteur sort of sitting there with yeah, a, a yeah. glass of fine wine just telling you stories of stuff rather than having to kind of... He doesn't care who, who he offends. If, talking to Keith Moon, there's a great little bit here. This is... Uh, uh, once again, drugs were the chief agent of transition with Pete Townsend checking out heroin and Keith Moon taking any drug within reach. His drug use had been legendary since the mid-60s. Kit Lambert told me when the group recorded Substitute, Keith was so out of it he couldn't remember playing. Later, he heard the record and presumed someone else must have been on drums. For weeks, he was worried about being replaced. With neuroses like these, it wasn't surprising that Keith found it hard to sleep. So when he went on tour, he took his axe to help pass sleepless nights. His work on ceilings and bathroom fittings was considered the best in the business. <laughs> Absolutely. You see, that's embroidery, that, isn't it? That's, it is. It is. But that mean, is it's a, totally, a dead man is telling a story about another dead man, <laughs> reported by a third man, yeah. who's really good at telling yeah. a story. And that is, but it's a story you it, want to hear. It is gossip. And it, yeah, yeah. But it is kind of... It, it's also... There's a sort of warmth to it and a breeziness yes. to it. He doesn't really care. No, I mean, the thing great. is, he's, and he doesn't... He, he, he hangs, as I say, his, his thesis is quite a light one. He does, he's, not, he's the opposite of... He does n literally no research. You can feel that. He's got a brilliant uh, kind of cast of characters at the back. And he's... Obviously, the research he's done is... He said at the beginning, I just took lots of people out for lunch. Yeah. He said, I figured that... I, actually, the book was going to cost me about £50,000 in lunches yeah, yeah, before I finished it. His but research is drinking a lot so, of champagne. So, I'm guessing your third book is not going to be breezy, full of breezy anecdotes. No, I thought... <laughs> what's... The, what's 
Okay, you've got, you've, got, you've got the book that doesn't really want to be about music at all, and then you've got the book which is the kind of, the, as you say, the act anecdote. What about a practitioner who has an axe to grind? There's got to be... Very big axe. There has to be a kind of a, a market for that. And I love this book because... Uh, this book is? This is. This book is the, This Wheel's on Fire, okay, which is Leave on Helm and the story of the band, Leave on Helm with Stephen Davis. But Stephen Davis, ghostwriter, but actually it's Levon's voice, his Arkansas drawl that carries you through this book. Now, you don't have to be a fan of the band. I, I am, as it happens, and I, 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 to, to, to love it. But what it, it's the story, really, of, 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 of a, music, a, a musical kind of formation. The band, um, most of them Canadian, except for, 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 um, for uh, Levon, they came together and supported uh, the, the rockabilly uh, Ronnie Hawkins and became the Hawks in the late 50s and played rather like the Beatles. They, they, were, they played everywhere and they played small clubs and they got incredibly tight. Um, there were three singers in the band, which is quite rare. Uh, Levon was a drummer and a singer and um, Robbie Robertson, guitarist and songwriter and uh, Rick Danko, bassist and, and singer and R R Richard Manuel, who played pianos and sang. They were incredibly musically gifted uh, they became famously uh, Bob Dylan's backing band. They were there uh, the night in Manchester where, you know, he was called Judas, and he, they played it fucking loud. But uh, that's, uh, they then produced two albums which are kind of, um, in the late 60s, uh, music from Big Pink and The Band, which were incredibly influential, different. They were, they were storytelling. They were doing something completely different in, in, with, with music. And they looked like they looked kind of unstoppable in some way until they were stoppable. And the drugs kicked in. Richard Manuel was the first to go. They famously staged their last waltz concert in, in 1976. And Levon tells this story in a very direct and interesting way. But it, be, it starts to become really interesting when it becomes clear that Robbie Robinson, who was the, the, the guy who, who wrote most of the songs, although in the book, the, the, the basement tapes that long hours of playing with Dylan. You can see that the making of the songs is very it was was quite a collaborative process. He gets all the money, and he conspires in the filming of the Last Waltz with, with Martin Scorsese, who was his mate, to make it look like uh, it was he was the most important. He was the band leader, and Levon and all was kind of because he put the band together. Really, he was felt he was the band leader, and this became a massive problem for Levon. And um, th that's really the second, the last third of the book is about him. Where it had been Robbie in the early pages, it just becomes Robertson towards the end. Yeah. And uh, it's quite bitter. They really detest him, by the end. And, the real, and the, I mean, I think the rest of the band are probably there. Yeah. And they all, I mean, I mean only yeah. Levon's died in 2012 of throat cancer. But Levon ends up being a good guy. He goes back to Woodstock and he has these midnight rambles and he performs with everybody. And everybody in the music industry kind of loves Levon. Whereas Robbie, it's, it's still a bit more complicated. But he kind of stitched his band. If you read the, 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 the Leave on Helm version, he stitched his band members up. Um, and that is a story that's as old as... as, as well, it's as every Rock. single yeah. band. It is every single yeah. band. Every single band has got a running sore of yeah. resentment through it. And, and, you know, which is eventually explored in a book. Yeah, and I think... I mean, I like this one because I, I, I'm interested in the band, but also because it was kind of unresolved. Um, there's a terrible thing where uh, Richard Manuel dies, he drinks himself to death, and uh, Robbie doesn't turn up to his funeral, even though he's supposed to say some words at the funeral. I mean, the, the kind of the, the anger that roars off the page when you read this, these accounts. And I just, I, I just think it's a, it, it's a, it, it, I don't think it's a great work of literature, but I think it's an amazing, it's an amazing, intense story. And I wonder, is there anything else that people, other than maybe war, that people can get quite is this it, up over? It could be where it's why people buy music books, isn't it? These, these kind of relationship stories, because bands are families yeah. that are locked in, you know, yeah. far longer than they want to. You know, nobody reads a movie star's memoirs for the same stuff at all, because you, you're not, you know... No. We Tom Cruise is not locked in with whoever no, it's, else. it's that thing. They made this incredible music. You felt no human beings could have... When the band were on form, you felt they, 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 they had telepathic... They did it for a year. And did it for a year. look at the contribution of the other four. The other four who didn't get any, any there's a, there's writing a, credits no, for that. There's a documentary. And who sing the songs, too. You know. There's a documentary about to be released. Have you seen this? No. Called, called Once Were Brothers... 
Yes. And which Robbie has masterminded. Yeah. Once were brothers, the story of Robbie Robertson and the band. Oh, this is oh. it. Yeah. But you see, he's, he's still a, doing it. He can't help well, himself. He can't help but he, he, but the, the, the terrible irony is all three of the singers are dead. Wait till well, they the all die. die. There is one brilliant anecdote. So he's the yeah. guy who wrote the songs but didn't sing. Yeah, there's one brilliant anecdote. He said that they, they, when they were recording The Last Watts live, they, uh, they all agreed to turn Robbie's microphone off because he was a shit singer anyway, they said. So, um, and apparently they didn't... He, had, he was so off his tits he didn't notice. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That, the Last Waltz is, of course, the, uh, the source of rock's best ever anecdote, Dave, <laughs> which is uh, the Neil Diamond Bob Dylan anecdote. Do you know that one? I don't so, think we know. So Robbie, I thought so you were going Robbie to talk about Van Morrison's polishing his trousers. Yeah. No, 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 no. Robbie, Robbie has been produ- so Robbie has been producing an album for Neil Diamond oh, yeah, called yeah. Beautiful Noise. So he invites Neil Diamond onto the bill of the Last Waltz, much against the wishes of the other members of the band and their friend Bob Dylan. And they've arranged the lineup for the gig so that Neil Diamond precedes Bob Dylan on stage. And Neil Diamond, those of you who've seen The Last Waltz will know even more so than uh, Van Morrison, Neil Diamond throws everything he's got at this performance. You know, this is his moment of legitimacy. Neil Young's here, Joni Mitchell here, uh, here, and look who else is here, Neil Diamond, right? So he does it, he comes off, he's sweating, he's got the towel around. There's Dylan in the wings, he turns to Dylan and he says, ha, Bob, you're going to have to go, yeah. go with something to beat that. Yeah, follow that. <laughs> and Bob says, what am I going to do, fall asleep? <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> what are they going to do, fellas? That's br- that couldn't be more deflated. <laughs> it's genius. Even if that's not true, let's just, let's just yeah. say it is. Let's right, say right. it is. Yeah. That is fantastic. So, John, those are your three. Dino, living high in the beat, yeah. dirty business of dreams, black vinyl, white, vi- uh, white powder, and this wheel's on fire. There's Levi so many on others Levi one could on have thrown up there. And, whoa, sorry, I'm going past. Uh, so now we move on to Andy's. Choices which couldn't have been more different, I think that's fair to say. So when uh, you and Mark joined us on Backlisted last year, for a, uh, uh, we did a podcast at the Port Elliott Festival about the Beatles, and I remember we had a conversation during that podcast about um, how when the Beatles came out they were anarchic and dangerous in a way that people like us have helped entirely obliterate and sand down and, you know, the, the blokes have ruined what the Beatles were by laboriously listing every aspect of the Beatles' life until almost nothing is left of the essence of the Beatles, right? Even Paul yeah. McCartney himself contributes to that process. Yeah. So the idea of the Beatles as, like, the sex pistols of their moment is entirely forgotten with the exception, perhaps, of a book that you might talk about shortly, Right? So I had to think about what I wanted to talk about, and I decided I would I choose three books that seem to me, in their different ways, to have some of the anarchy of great music within them. So for me, when I read a music book, the music books that really speak to me are not those books that could appear in monthly magazines as long magazine articles. I'm, I've read all those. I'm not interested in those at this point. What I want is something that doesn't fit and doesn't feel right and isn't easy and isn't, um, can be fun. But, but um, So the three books I've chosen are, from left to right, Nico, Songs They Never Play on the Radio by James Young, Kraut Rock Sampler, One Head's Guide to the Grosser Cosmischer Music by Julian Cope, and finishing the hat, collected lyrics with attendant comments, principles, heresies, grudges, wines and anecdotes by Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> can, I, can I interrupt for a second? Is it reasonable to say none of these have been bestsellers? <laughs> <laughs> Which no. may possibly be connected with their so- title. Sondheim. Sondheim. That was a big bestseller. Oh, was it? OK. All right. Sondheim. So bestseller. So, best, so much bestseller. There he published the sequel. Uh, two years later, the sequel to Finishing the Hat called Look, I Made a Hat. Oh, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so uh, why don't I start by talking about Julian Cope and about Krautrock Sampler. How many people here have read a book by Julian Cope? Oh, yeah, quite a lot of people. And I could have chosen one of his memoirs, uh, right? Because those are brilliant books, uh, head on and repossessed. Memoir is fantastic. They're, they're, oh, and, but really I wanted really to talk about Krautrock Sampler because Krautrock Sampler 
for two reasons, really. Uh, the first is that, in its own way, Krautrock Sampler is a memoir. It, it's an attempt to catch, in six weeks, he wrote it incredibly quickly, what he felt about bands like Can and Noy and Faust and Tangerine Dream and Amondul and Amondul 2, Zwei, uh, uh, when he was a teenager. He has a brilliant part where he talks about listening to Neu Zwei in, while on holiday in a caravan and John Peel playing uh, Für Immer, uh, the opening track, which, which lasts forever. Um, and how it transported him and how it was so different to everything else that was available to listen to at the time and how it in, inspired him. And... Um, uh, the second reason I wanted to chose it is because the book is long out of print. Julian published it himself. He refuses to republish it. And I uh, went to one of his shows a couple of weeks ago, and I was lucky enough to meet him afterwards, and I thought, well, I'm going to be appearing this. I'm going to ask him, why won't you let Krautrock Sampler be republished? It sells for a minimum of £100 secondhand, often far north of that. Why won't you let this brilliant little book, which is so full of energy and passion and, and, and love, why won't you let it be republished? And he basically said, well, because people are always on at me, blokes are always on at me for missing out their favourite Krautrock band <laughs> or for, for not covering the full releases of Agitation Free or for, for not being, yeah. for being insufficiently encyclopedic despite the fact the book is called a sampler, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? That blokes are so at him. Come on, you haven't put my favourite band in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he's just gone, you know what, fuck you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fuck you. I don't blame him, actually. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm completely with him. If you want to read the book, you can read it because you can download it off the internet for free, which is what Julian wants you to do. You can get a PDF of it for nothing. He encourages you to pass it from hand to hand like Sam is that literature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? And I just want to... There's two little bits I want to read. This is... I'm just going to read the first few sentences of... So at the back of the book, there's a capsule review of 50 Krautrock albums. And here's the opening of what he says about the debut album by La Dusseldorf. Translation, The Birmingham. <laughs> by, by Neu Drummer, the band formed by Neu Drummer Klaus Dinger. Klaus Dinger's finest moment lasts for the whole of the first La Dusseldorf album. <laughs> From the moment the needle touches down, it's a sonic speed trip through every street in Dusseldorf City. Klaus Dinger and his two drum Klaus Dinger and his two drummer cohorts came up with such a stunning album here that punk rock happened. We all know this. But why was it so good? <laughs> now, I love the insolence of that. We all know this. Mm. Yeah. Right, come on, get up to my speed. Come yeah. on. Right? And he ends by saying, it's like no one, but shares a similar spirit to Sieg Sieg Sputnik. <laughs> he wants to annoy you, right? He wants yeah. to needle you. And succeed. Uncool yeah. and cool. Masterful and arrogant. This is intentionally and willfully amateurish genius. Now, who in this room doesn't want to immediately go and listen to La Dusseldorf, yeah. right? And actually, the record is brilliant. It doesn't disappoint. It's a fantastic record. But the point is, it's channeling that kind of... It's Leicester Bangs via Tamworth. It has a yeah, mixture yeah. of the kind of Leicester Gonzo uh -huh. approach, but a very British kind of... And also, Julian is kind of... Well, let me talk about the second book. So this is a book called Nico Songs They Never Play on the Radio by James Young. I don't know how many people here Fantastic have read that. Fantastic book, great book. Oh, it's just a brilliant book. Okay, so this book came out in 1993. I read it then. I thought it was terrific. It's a book by Nico's keyboard player about being on tour with Nico in the 1980s towards the end of her career uh, when uh, all she basically did was travel from city to city where heroin was available, uh, play gigs, score heroin, take heroin, move on to the next gig. Uh, uh, I read it in, uh, when it was published. I thought it was amazing. It seemed to me like a kind of uh, Hunter Thompson-like 
uh, account of the glorious, the shabby uh, glory, uh, the disgusting beauty of being on the road with Nico. And uh, we were talking about doing it on Backlisted, so I reread it last year to see uh, how it stood up, and I really didn't like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> on rereading it, I thought, wow, this is. This is such a brilliant example of what happens with books. You can read a book when you're 25 and you think it's one book, and yeah. you read another book when you're 50, and, it, and you haven't changed, right? But the book is completely different. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and one of the things that's changed is um, when I first read it, my favourite member of the Velvet Underground was Lou Reed. And uh, now I read it, um, my favourite member of the Velvet Underground is Nico. Right, Nico made more great records than Lou Reed ever did. So you don't want to read this terrible portrait of one of. I just thought it was really disrespectful. <laughs> I'm not even joking, John. I, I thought it was really disrespectful. Right, there's a and there's a piece by there's a brilliant piece by uh, Cope again on his website about Nico's record, The Marble Index, and I'd just like to read it because it it sort of it's only a paragraph, but it sort of tells you what the problem is with James Young's book, which on one level is a really good book, right? But it's the, it's the failure to acknowledge that the reason he gets to write the book is because of the talent of the person he was playing keyboards for. And he, the reason I'm sitting here talking about it 25 years later, 27 years later, is because of the talent of the person he was playing keyboards for. He doesn't, no, want, that's a good point. He doesn't yeah, want to give that to her. No. Because if he gave that to her, right, he where, how, where would he be in that? He'd be, he'd be diminished, and he, he's important, right? It's a young man's you book. As, as, a, as a kind of, uh, as a, a, an insight into the kind of the most tawdry, mm -hmm. bottom-end uh, version of a rock and roll tour, and they're staying in these places for the cockroaches, yeah, yeah. and everyone's taking heroin. Really, and really at one point, before they go on stage, Nico has a wee in the sink yeah. <laughs> in the dressing room, and you just think, this is just, it can't get yeah. any worse. There's something absolutely gripping about how just how terrible this. Didn't you think that was kind of fascinating, revealing? Because you never I read about that. Look. I absolutely did, and I would be so much. I would have enjoyed this round with the book so much more if he'd stopped to say. And you know what? People came to see her because she was great. Yeah. yeah. And people came to see her because she made the Marble Index and Desert Shore and The End and yeah. Chelsea Girls. People came to see her because she didn't make Sally Can't Dance. Yeah. But you see, there is, yeah. there is a musician who hasn't been born who doesn't think, if they could only turn me up in the mix a bit, <laughs> yeah. it would be better. So this, is, so, this is what, so this is just the little bit that Julian writes about Nico, and he says this. With regard to my own relationship with the Marble Index, that's Nico's second LP, there's not a moment, an instant, a flicker of its bizarre, gothic, underworldly timelessness that does not, has not, will not continue to reduce me not only to tears, but to an amphibian wreck upon my own psychic ocean floor. Because it's drones, it's dreams, it's fantastic Germanic heroinian reveal Nico to have been far, far beyond any archetype that we have before experienced. And in as deeply patriarchal and homosocial an environment as rock criticism, it is essential, it's essential for someone as free of that bullshit as myself <laughs> to come out fighting and raging and say, no, Nico was not just the singer of three songs on the first Velvet's LP. She was not just the lucky lover of Iggy Pop, Jackson Brown and Jim Morrison. She was way beyond all of that shit. A law unto herself, a goddess a muse, and also, any guesses? Two words. Also a lawmaker. <laughs> We've never and, got that. Yeah. And a priestess. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Right? I, I'm really, as I read that to you, I can feel the hairs on my arms standing up on yeah. end because I think, wow, you're doing really great work there. You're not just going, well, then she, you know, she put out another handling bass chores on the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, she, he's really yeah. finding a way yeah, into yeah. what the... The, what's is the that, magic is of the record, right? Is that a bit, yeah. a bit in rock books where they go, and then their next album. You feel yeah. so weary. Yeah. So tell us about Stephen Sondheim. Sondheim. Uh, well, and so Stephen Sondheim, I don't know how many people here tonight are fans of musical theatre. 
All of you. That's really surprising. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I do really like musical theatre. I'm totally fascinated. You asked me what records my parents had. They had a lot of uh, uh, LPs of show tunes, so that probably rubbed off on me quite a lot. And Stephen Sondheim, uh, you know, the greatest living American composer, probably. That's probably factually accurate. Um, uh, and he uh, published these two books in 2010 and 2012, and his books of lyrics, um, but they contain... Um, copious uh, uh, footnotes and anecdotes and extremely waspish asides about people he's worked with and people he hasn't worked with and who can write songs and who can't write songs and uh, uh, amongst the many glories of this but Sondheim uh, of course, no stranger to the pop charts because he writes things like Sending the Clowns and Losing My Mind and uh, Good Thing Going. So people will come to him for pop hits every so often. Um, but I thought you would like this. One of the things that will change your life after you read Stephen Sondheim's Finishing the Hat is you won't listen to pop songs the same way ever again. Because he says... One of the things that Sondheim says is, I have never written a bad song. And you go, OK. He says, I've written songs you don't like, <laughs> but I've never written a bad one. All my rhymes rhyme. <laughs> Brilliant. Right. Yeah. And he's got a big downer on half rhymes. <laughs> oh, good. Right. So, so, for instance, every day when he goes to his computer and sees what the Google Doodle is, he's going... Because Google and Doodle don't rhyme. They half rhyme. Yeah. Right? And he says... Uh, 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 so he says, this is fine. Half rhyming is fine in pop songs. Yeah. And he quotes, uh, he quotes a singer who he calls X. And this singer says, I hate all true rhymes. I think they only allow you a certain limited range. I'm not a great believer in perfect rhymes. I'm just a believer in feelings that come across... You see Sondheim going, you loser. If the craft gets in the way of the feelings, then I'll take the feelings any day. I don't sit with a rhyming dictionary, and I don't look for big words to be clever. To me, they take away from the medium I'm most comfortable with, which is today. <laughs> yeah. So that's the quote. So Stevens built his straw man. Right. Yeah. Then this is what he says. Allowing for X's dismissal of every first-rate lyricist from Irving Berlin to Oscar Hammerstein <laughs> as yeah. having a limited range. <laughs> X is nevertheless not the only songwriter to voice this defence of laziness. <laughs> I reprint it simply because it's the most articulate one I've come across. <laughs> whack, 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 line after line. The notion that good rhymes and the expression of emotion are contradictory qualities, that neatness equals lifelessness, is, to borrow a disapproving phrase from my old counterpoint text, the refuge of the destitute. <laughs> Claiming that true rhyme is the enemy of substance is the sustaining excuse of lyricists who are unable to rhyme well with any consistency whatsoever. Fantastic. You want paragraphs yeah. and paragraphs. He's fearless, isn't he? He, does, yeah. he doesn't, doesn't care. care. No, he doesn't care. And that's the, that's the other reason I chose this. There's more rock and roll energy in Stephen Sondheim's Finishing the Hat than in Keith Richards or Eric Clapton's right. books, right? Because they've allowed it to be sanded down and removed and, and made pretty. Can I ask you a and, question about no. like Keith Richards and, uh, yeah. and Pete Townsend's books? You guys know publishing. What kind of advance do they get for a book like that? Uh, when Elton John's... Massive. Yeah. Huge. Well, go on, how much? Um, I'm trying to remember what Keith was paid, but it was... I mean, it was, it was you know, it was over a million, I would think. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm going to say very gingerly that there, there, there was a recent example of an auction over the respective memoirs of the singer and the guitarist of a famous 60s rock group where the singer would only accept an offer that was higher than that received <laughs> by the guitarist. Right, right. As a result of which one publisher Again, we're massively the of... overpaid yeah. for a book that they will have lost, uh, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of pounds on. Hundreds of thousands of pounds. What they hope is they're going to hit the one that just hits yeah, the yeah, sweet yeah. spot that Christmas, because they always come just before Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As I was saying earlier, you know, that are going to cross over from people who read... And that the, the one will make up all the money the... that they lost and all the others. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take an executive decision here. To, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. going to whip to one book that I know all four of us have read. Because I read it because you covered it on the backlisted podcasts, and Mark had read it, I think. It's fantastic, yeah. Uh, Which is, uh, I think it's just an interesting, uh, you know, case of, you know, splendid, extraordinary rock memoir, which most people won't have read, which is Warren Zevon... Well, I'll sleep when I'm dead, The Dirty Life and Times of Warren Zevon, which is an oral history... Uh, put together by Crystal Zivon, who was his, his wife. Long-suffering. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, well, absolutely long-suffering. And it's just, I found it absolutely extraordinary. And I'm just going to, for those who haven't read it, I'll just just give you two, two tastes of what made it extraordinary for me, which is among the many people consulted in the many voices that weave in and out of this book, is his son, who I think first appears in the book after Warren Zevon has died, because you know he was diagnosed with cancer and he, you know, he died about a year and a bit, didn't he, before he died? And 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 uh, and the Jordan Zevon, who's his son, says my job when he died was to clear out the pawn. He thought, my God, <laughs> that's the level of kind of admission that we get here in this book. And then he reappears in the chapter at the end when Warren Zevon, is, you know, as I said, is, he's been diagnosed with cancer. He's only got a year. So Warren Zevon starts to make an album with, in which he can get all these famous friends, Bruce Springsteen and Ry Cooder and all these people to be on it. And, uh, and Jordan says, you know, a lot of people think that's amazing that he had the energy to do that. But I just think he had the ego to do that. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that. And that's the kind of profound truth that this book gets so at. True. You know he, what I mean? He, the he, drive yeah. of musicians yeah. is something that people always underestimate. He, he authorised this book before he died. Yes. That he said to Crystal, when you, when you write yeah, you, it, tell them everything. So he, but even that decision seems, when you've read the book, you know, <laughs> before you read the book, that decision seems noble, and after you read the book, it seems narcissistic. Yeah. Um, I, I think what's so great about you choosing that book, Dave, is that it's kind of, for all of us, it touches all the things we've been talking yeah. about. The fact that it's written by a long suffering female partner yeah you know we are used to thinking ah brilliant stories about blokes doing bad stuff and putting bombs down toilets (laughs) someone's mum has to clean that up afterwards yeah yeah. absolutely and we when we recorded that episode do you remember our producer really hated the book (laughs) he did (laughs) and i said to him why do you hate the book it's a great it's a great so well written and he went well but the, he's an asshole. Yeah. And I went, but do you not like Warren's evil? Yeah. He went, no, I don't like <laughs> Warren's evil. There's, oh, no, there's right. your issue. That's why you read yeah. music books, because you like the music. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's really true, and that totally yeah. it affects how you then read the book, right? Yeah. Good old Warren if or he was, if what he, a if brute. If he was a football yeah. manager, yeah. you'd think, what an asshole! He yeah. should have been in prison. Yeah. And I, you also get the impression that he must have been so charismatic for people to have still been fond of him and supported him when he did such repulsive things. Yeah. I mean, he's absolutely incredible, isn't he? He's just, his sexual appetite is ludicrous. And yet, and he's literally picking up women every 20 minutes, isn't he? And yet, and yet he's intensely jealous when anyone goes any, anywhere, a man goes near any, any one of them, or his it, wife, you know. No. Yeah, and there's a bit where he encourages his son to, to throw food all over a restaurant <laughs> and applauds him when he's but done he's this. He's also thing. got that amazing thing, hasn't he? Uh, he's got... He's got uh, my favourite bits of the book are not those stories. They're the stories about how his OCD would manifest itself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he's on tour, he has to go to the Gap and buy all their 
grey and t-shirt. white t-shirt. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Which he which he then will choose one to wear for the gig that night and discard the remaining T-shirts. And when he died, his son had to clear out the yeah. pawn. Uh, they hundreds gave the hundreds of hundreds they gave a great t-shirt. t-shirt to all his friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what and a yeah. wonderful yet, souvenir. And, yeah. and yet the beginning of that book, which is about him and the discovery of his body and his family and looking after him and... The, and, the, and you think, how, how, have they, how have they been through the, the horror, endless horror of his life, and still find it in themselves to, 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 to look after him? Why don't they just leave him kind of, you know, lying there? It's an extra- it is an extraordinary book. I love that he says it somewhere, doesn't he? He said, I, I got to be Jim Morrison a whole lot longer than he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah He's really proud of his life. Yeah. There's and a bit where he says he wears his alcoholism as a badge of pride. Which <laughs> <laughs> is wonderful. I read, I mean, the thing is, I love Warren Zevon's records. I didn't yeah. think less of him as a creative no, individual no. after reading Lovely. it. If anything, I thought, I, I found it. You admired them more for how the hell he actually managed how to record. How did he make a record? I know. He did it. And also, you look at the musicians who love to work yeah, yeah. with. With him, because as you say, a mixture of charisma and res- and the respect they have for him as an artist was enough to help them I overcome. Yeah, Bruce Pearson makes a really good First time I heard this record, his first, oh, his first Asylum record, 1976 or whatever it came out, and I remember being struck by that line. I was staying in the Hollywood Hawaiian Hotel. I was thinking this hotel will be standing. If California sinks into the ocean, as the mystics and statistics say it will. I predict this hotel will be standing until I've paid my bill. <laughs> and I thought, that's such a clever line. Only in the book do you learn it was true. Yeah. He yeah. checked into the Hollywood yeah. Hawaiian Hotel, yeah. couldn't afford to pay the bill, so he stayed yeah. for weeks, hoping somebody would get him out of it. Because you know? <laughs> so much of it is just ripped straight out of his life, isn't it? Directly Bruce Bruce makes a really good point about it, that he writes songs that have real meaning, real real resonance, but also really funny. Yeah, he's Actually, very, very funny. few people do that. Yeah. You know, they're either like comedy records over here or, or really kind of the moving. Other, and the, the other thing about Zebon is he's a, he's, he's a... His fans, there's a lot of... Or were, are a lot of famous writers amongst his yeah, fans. Yeah. He ha- he's like Randy Newman in, the, in that respect. There's a kind of writerly American sensibility to... His lyrics, you know, they're they're even even things that are spontaneous are carefully thought out. Yeah, and, this and was considered, a, you know. This was not published in the UK, was it? Uh, it was distributed, distributed here, but it wasn't actually published here. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I remember reading a review by Andy Mail, actually, who's been a guest on the podcast in Mojo, I think, and he gave it a rave review and said because yeah. it kind of fits. It's an oral history. Some of my favourite music books are oral history. Uptight, the book about the Velvets, yeah. the ED the e- 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 by George yeah, Plimpton, the Plimptons, that's an incredible book. Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil. Yeah. Daniel Rachel, who you had on here, yeah. his recent oral histories of Rock Against Racism and Cool Britannia. Yeah. I think when they're good oral histories, they really allow uh, the truth out between conflicting stories. Right, yeah. So she's amazing to, I mean, it's, it's, um, I oh, think, to beautiful, so, yeah, beautifully put together. Heck book. Of piece Fantastic, of work. It's a substantial bit of work. thing. I so, I mean, I hope you've had loads of uh, you know, good suggestions from this podcast, but I think we'd all say if you're going to read one, yeah. would we say that? Warren Zevon, <laughs> are you going to read one? Crap rocks and he's got a bit quiet. Yeah. Minority Report yeah. from Andy Miller yeah. over there. Yeah, uh, uh, no, read, um, read... Why don't you buy a copy of I'll Sleep When I'm Dead and give Crystal Zevon some money right. and then download the PDF of Crap Rocks on Right, okay. Yeah. That's a good I mean, compromise. It is the nay plus ultra, I think, of the, of the rock stars of shits. I mean, there is no, you know, you're not going to get a more rounded. Even you're saying, you know, the Nico book is, is squalid, but really, really stupidly bad behaviour. Zevon kind of is is out on his own. It's absolutely well, breathtaking. Also, you were going to talk about Mark. You were going to talk about Chronicles by Bob Dylan, weren't you? Yeah. I was, but we haven't really got yeah, time. That's a great. No, but there's a, just very quickly. You can cut this, right? There's a Robbie Robertson story in Chronicles, <laughs> yeah. which is the best Robbie Robertson story, which is. They're up in Woodstock, it's the 60s. Dylan writes, uh, I was out in a car with Robbie from my band. (laughs) And uh, Robbie turned to me and he said, So, Dylan, where are you going to take it next? 
And Dylan says, I couldn't even be bothered to answer. (laughs) (laughs) I just stared out of the window and pretended he hadn't spoken. You know, that sense in that book that Dylan's got got the number of everyone who who thinks they know him. Cut that. I just wanted to tell the story. And doesn't mind insulting them publicly as well. We'll continue continue this in the bar, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, Annie Miller and John Mitchison from Backlisted. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.